We are in our second week looking at three essential qualities for those who follow Jesus. All three qualities found in the final verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Apostle Paul uses the entire chapter to describe and define love as the greatest quality evidenced in the life and character of a genuine Christ follower. And after making his case, the Apostle sums up the chapter this way in its final verse, verse 13. It reads like this. And now these three qualities remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest attribute that marks, that should define the follower of Jesus. This truth we've already established during our previous eight-week series titled The Greatest Thing. Love is the greatest. Agreed. But faith and hope are right up there with love. Essential qualities for anyone who has a relationship with God. And the Bible clearly articulates that faith in particular is significant in the life of a Christ follower. As I mentioned last week, if you took the Bible as a whole, certainly the Apostle Paul's writings, which make up half of the New Testament, you, you would most likely conclude that faith is the most important, the, the greatest quality for a Christ follower. Not love, but faith, if not for that final statement in 1 Corinthians 13. Nonetheless, faith really challenges and rivals love for top billing as an essential quality in the life of someone who follows after Jesus. So scripture defines faith this way in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So a, a practical kind of layman's definition for faith can be that, that we believe God before we have proof that we defer to him as the source of all truth. Faith is trusting God and his word, even when our own thinking, our own logic, our own reasoning does not agree with him. And that is why faith is essential for those who claim to follow Jesus. Because faith says that we trust Jesus, we choose to believe him rather than leaning on our own understanding. Faith is actually trusting God more than we trust ourselves. And Jesus loved it. He loved when he saw faith demonstrated. Whether it was a bleeding woman looking to be healed or a Roman centurion who was, who was approaching Jesus on behalf of his sick servant or only one of 10 lepers who returned to thank Jesus for being healed, Jesus was genuinely thrilled when he, when he saw faith evidenced in those around him. I mean, faith stirs the heart of God like nothing else. In fact, Scripture boldly declares, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So last week, last week we began to look at three practices Jesus commanded his followers to embrace that require faith. Practices that make no sense to people who do not have faith in Jesus, but are foundational to his followers. Jesus often commanded his followers to believe him, to trust him, to obey him, to follow his example, even when his behavior cl clashed with common human reasoning and understanding, even when it just say made no sense to his followers. So I chose, I chose three of these countercultural faith practices for our consideration these two weeks. So last week, we looked at Jesus' practice of prayer, 
Because Jesus taught his followers to develop prayer as a lifestyle and to believe that the prayers of a person of faith are powerful and they're effective. I mean, because both heaven and hell know that to be true. We just need to start to believe it and then pray like it. So this week, this week we'll look at two more practices taught by Jesus, modeled to him to his followers that they're to emulate, both which make no sense to people who do not embrace faith. The first faith practice that I want to look at, it concerns serving others. It actually concerns greatness in the kingdom because Jesus taught that greatness is not found in being served, but rather choosing to serve others. And the second practice Jesus taught to his followers was this, to love everyone, love everyone, even those who don't love you back. See, Jesus commanded and modeled these faith practices as normal behavior for those whose faith was in him. Practices which were impractical, unreasonable, kind of considered downright foolish to those who don't have faith in Jesus. So let's first look at this radical teaching that where Jesus proclaimed greatness is found in serving others rather than being served. It was a notion as countercultural and counterintuitive back in Jesus' day as it is today. I mean, think of it. The very definition of success, significance, importance, and greatness is most often determined by how many people serve you, how much authority and power you hold to compel other people to serve you and do your bidding. That's the, the common perception, the common understanding of greatness, both in Jesus' day as well as today. Jesus comes along and he redefines greatness for those who follow him. He taught that greatness is not getting others to serve you, but in you choosing to serve others. A teaching so radical that Jesus had to model it, explain it, demonstrate it, and teach it again and again before his followers would get it. In fact, just one week before he'd go to the cross, after three years of pouring into these same disciples, Jesus had to break into yet another argument between the 12 concerning who is the greatest among them. Mark chapter 10 records that Jesus gathers the guys together and it once again explains how greatness works in the kingdom for people of faith. I'll start reading verse 42 in, in Mark chapter 10. It reads this way. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wants to draw a very clear contrast between greatness in the kingdom and greatness as defined by the world. He, uh, he declares the obvious to his disciples that the world defines greatness by being served, by exercising authority over those beneath you. Position, power, authority, the typical understanding, the typical definition for greatness. Jesus looks his followers in their eyes and declares, not so with you. Jesus tells the 12 in the kingdom, as people of faith, we define greatness differently. 
Greatness is defined by serving others, not in being served. For even I did not come to be served, Jesus says, but to serve and to give up my life for the benefit of others. I mean, think of it. It had to blow the minds of this ragtag group of disciples who seemed to be constantly arguing and comparing and competing for position among themselves. And this wasn't the first time. This was not the first time where they had been confronted by Jesus concerning their self-centered and worldly view of greatness and power. Mark chapter 9, it records another time when Jesus introduced this countercultural principle of greatness into an ongoing argument between the disciples. This time demonstrating this kingdom principle, this kingdom definition of greatness through an object lesson. Uh, let, me, uh, let me set the context for you. The disciples had been arguing about who was the greatest, comparing and competing with one another over, another over who was most important, who was most significant, significant of the 12. I mean, sound familiar? So Jesus questions the 12, starting in, in verse 33 of Mark chapter 9. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. And then Jesus thinks, I got to demonstrate this somehow. I got I to show them what I mean. Time for an object lesson. He then took a little child and had, them stand, had him stand among them. Taking the child in his arms, Jesus said to the disciples, whoever, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. You see what Jesus did here? By bringing this child to stand in front of them, Jesus is saying, hey guys, hey fellas, give yourselves to those who can bring you no status, no strokes, no recognition. Just serve people, love people, especially those who cannot pay you back. Because if you do, if you learn to serve people out of the limelight, without promotion, without the need for recognition and attention, but serve them with energy, joy, and compassion, you'll begin to understand what greatness in the kingdom looks like. You'll begin to understand that greatness is found in serving, especially when you serve the least of these, like, like this little child then you'll begin to understand the definition of greatness in the kingdom. See, the disciples, they often missed it. And we too can miss it. Here's why. Because we usually don't recognize that what is most important is often not most impressive. Let me say that again. What is most important is often not most impressive. The 12 disciples had the same misunderstanding that many of us still have today, that the most significant people are those who are up front, most visible, most prominent, even when it comes to serving. Hear me when I say, do not confuse prominence with significance. Prominence has to do with being seen. Significance has to do with impact. Often the person who has the greatest impact is not the one who has the biggest audience, 
but the one who allows God to use them powerfully out of the spotlight. The Bible actually goes to great lengths to hammer home that God recognizes behind the scenes and under the radar serving as significant, even when nobody else does. In fact, Scripture tells us that no act of service or sacrifice escapes God's notice. He does not miss a thing. And he regards all service done in his name as significant. Jesus himself, he reminds his disciples that even the most ordinary of tasks, when done with the the love and compassion he provides, is worthy of reward. It's not often prominent, but it's significant. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 10, 42. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little children because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. You see, that's our hope. That's our hope, that God sees it. He sees our service, and he'll reward it. In one day, he'll reward it. See, the task is almost immaterial. It doesn't need to be heroic. Jesus says that simple tasks done with love can have great impact. In fact, I I love what Mother Teresa said about how to have a great impact for God. She said this, you don't need to do great things, just small things with great love. See, people of faith, they don't serve because they love doing the task before them. They don't love the task. They do it because they love Jesus. See, our motivation for serving is love. It's a desire to to demonstrate the love and the gratitude we have for Jesus because of what he did for us on the cross, right? We serve as a thankful response to his mercy and grace shown us. We serve in a simple way to honor him and to emulate him, to bless him, love him by living the same kind of life that he lived. See, our motivation is love. It is not duty, obligation, guilt, or payback, but love. If it's anything else, if love isn't the sole motivation, that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, that we studied for eight weeks, tells us that serving counts for nothing if it's not done with love, that it amounts to nothing. We gain nothing. See, greatness is found in serving others out of love. Which brings us to the third faith practice Jesus commanded, the second one for us today, for his followers to embrace. His command to love everyone, even those, especially those who don't love us back, which sounds downright foolish to someone who does not have faith in Jesus. I mean, it doesn't make sense to them. And perhaps the most challenging test of faith is when we're commanded to love some people who don't love us right? When our natural instinct would be to avoid them or discount them or dislike them or worse. See, Jesus issues just such a test to his, his followers in Luke chapter 6, 27 and following. Jesus says this to them, but I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Man, that is is a heavy teaching. That's powerful. 
That's a high bar. And Jesus isn't done yet. He continues, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But I say, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Wow, that is a powerful passage. And the, the Greek term that I've highlighted here is translated credit three times in this passage. But it's translated over a hundred times as grace in the rest of the New Testament. Same, same term. It's normally translated grace, right? The favor of God. See, when, when you love people who don't love you, when you love people who hate you, grace is extended to you to do what you could not do in your own power. See, God says, I want you to love your enemies. And you and I say, I can't do that. God says, trust me, do it. And our faith rises up. And as soon as we obey, grace is given to you and I to do what we could not do one minute earlier. Credit, grace is extended to you so you can love, you can give something back that was never given to you. When you love those who don't love you, when you lo love those who, are, who hate you, your enemy, you demonstrate that you have a source. You have a source of love that those without faith know nothing about. See, when you love those who don't love you, others, others recognize that this kind of love, I mean, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it's unnatural. This love can't be you. I mean, no one loves people who don't love them back. And they recognize this can't be you. That's the point. That's the point. People will see it. They will see the power of God at work in you. They recognize this love is unnatural. It is. It is. Because it's supernatural. Right? They conclude that God must be the source of love inside you. See, when I give love back in return for hate, I prove that I have a source. I'm connected to a source of love that people without faith do not have, right? When I love those who hate me, God gives me grace, credit to do what I could not do on my own because God responds to our faith by supplying us with what we did not have in the first place. You getting this? Look, when I love someone who loves me, all I'm doing is reciprocating. I mean, anyone can reciprocate and love those who love you. I mean, it's natural, Anyone can do that. People without faith can do that. But the Bible does not say, rise and reflect love given to you. The Bible says, arise and shine. I'm not giving back what you gave me. I'm not reflecting back love given to me. I'm giving love from a source you didn't have to give me in the first place, right? My source is the one who lives inside me. I have a source. And obeying God and loving those who don't love us is the very definition of faith expressing itself through love. It demonstrates the love of Jesus like nothing else. So there you have it. Three practices commanded by Jesus that require faith, that make no sense 
to someone who does not believe, someone who has no faith in Jesus and his word. So let me recap. Jesus taught his followers to embrace a lifestyle of prayer because our prayers are powerful and effective. He then taught that greatness in the kingdom is found in serving others, not in being the one served. And Jesus taught us to follow his example by loving everyone, loving those who do not love us back. See, these three practices require faith, essential to those who follow Jesus, but making no sense to people without faith. Essential because these practices accurately represent Jesus by the way we live, right? And our greatest desire as people of faith is to know him, is to reflect him, is to be like him, to represent him, to represent him to a watching world. I mean, it's the only thing in the world worth giving our lives to. So what do you say? So before I close in prayer, maybe I can help you think about how you can apply some of the truth that you've heard today. We know that one of the best things you can do is to have a conversation with a friend or a family member. Talk about what you learned with someone before you get distracted and it's gone, right? So here are a couple of questions to help you get your discussion started. Try these on. Jesus defines greatness very differently from the rest, how the rest of the world does. Compare and contrast how Jesus defines greatness and how today's world defines greatness. Talk about it. See how different they are. Get your conversation started by doing some comparison and contrasting. And then you can move on to another question like this. Why is it so hard to love someone who does not love us back? Why is that so difficult for us? Such a challenge. Discuss why it is. And then what are some of the effective ways that you can demonstrate to love someone who clearly does not love you? Talk about it. Get a plan. And then the third question, real practical, think of a tangible way you can demonstrate your faith expressing itself through love by coming up with a plan of how you'll attempt to share the love of Christ with someone this week, preferably someone who does not love you back because you'll never be more like Jesus than when you love those who don't love you back. Let's pray. So Father in heaven, we are thankful that you supply us with what we need. When our faith rises up, you give us the love and compassion to love people who don't love us. You're the one who, who helps us build a lifestyle of prayer. You're the one who rewards us, who sees our service, even when done in secret, but you don't, you don't miss a thing. That gives us great confidence, great comfort, great joy. So help us. Help us as we seek to emulate and represent Jesus to a watching world by the way we pray, by the way we serve, by the way we love. That's our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.